All right, so 1 Timothy, we're actually at basically the end of this uh, letter. We're going to get into 2 Timothy in a couple weeks. We have one more Sunday in 1 Timothy, um, so next week we'll finish up this first letter and then move on from there. Um, but 1 Timothy 6 is just, uh, it's packed. It's just packed with tons of stuff. So we wanted to take it in a few bites rather than flying through it too quickly. Um, but as we get to the end of this letter, here's what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing kind of a shift. Most of this letter has been fairly um, hard on the, on the Ephesians, right? It's been, it, this letter was written by Paul to Timothy because the church in Ephesus had gone off the rails. Uh, they had completely gone, like swerved away from the truth is how Paul describes it in the early part of the letter. And because that's a, a real issue and an intense issue, there's been a lot of correcting that has had to happen. And maybe a little bit heavy on the correction and maybe less so on the encouragement, although there's been encouragement mixed in here for sure. Um, chapter 6 really does take that turn, though. And we start to see a little, lot more, okay, here's, here's how we move forward. Not just here's what you're doing wrong, but here's what we can be doing correctly. And I think that's really helpful. Um, but it makes sense on why Paul is handling it the way he is. Uh, they're, they're in trouble. This church is in big trouble. Now, Timothy is the guy that Paul sent there to help fix it. So he's instructing Timothy directly on what to do. But, but this church is completely uh, gone nuts and they need some strong correction. It's kind of like when, you're, when your toddler's reaching for the hot stove, you don't say, oh, sweetie, would you touch the fridge instead? Right? What do you do? You smack their hand and you scare them so that they don't burn themselves. Like that's what you do because you don't want them to have bodily harm. Spiritually speaking, Paul's doing that, right? He's just kind of shaking these people out of their, their uh, foolishness. But, but as we get to the end of this letter, we're seeing some real encouragement. Encouragement on how to keep moving forward. The theme of First and Second Timothy is the theme of staying faithful to Jesus. But what Paul has to do first in this letter is get them to understand that they're not being faithful to Jesus so that they can move forward. Now we can get there. And so today what we're going to see is really some three ways. We're going to look at three things. Maybe there's more, but I'm going to at least point out three things in these verses that will help us stay faithful to Jesus. Ultimately, we know that our faithfulness to Jesus is not really the point. The point is that he's faithful to us, and because he's faithful to us, we can be faithful to him. Um, it's not really on us. Ultimately, it's flowing through him into us that gives us faithfulness. But there are some real practical things here. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, 12 to 16. We're also going to be, if you have a Bible, you want to go to um, Hebrews 11 and 12. We're going to kind of bounce between those two passages. So if you want to be prepared for that, you can be. Um, but let's just start in verse 12 and look at what Paul says. He, he says this, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, he's speaking directly to Timothy here. Uh, he's, he's trying to get Timothy to understand his role as God's uh, ambassador to this church to, to show them a better way, a better model. 
And he says in verse 12, the first word there is fight, the good fight of the faith. We need to be careful with this because we could take that, pull that out of its context and go, okay, so God wants us to rise up some kind of a army to have a battle with those that don't love Jesus. Is that what he's saying? Uh, and I think we, we know that that really doesn't work. Um, it's not the intention. Um, it's not the meaning of this. We know that if we read it in the context. Because if you go back to verse 11, he says, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Gentleness, and then the very next word after that is fight. Okay, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, (laughs) but gentle is not how I would describe a fight. Uh, By definition, you can't be gentle in a fight unless you're going to lose, right? Um, So so is is he saying here, like, is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? That's the question. Is he, is he saying, all right, on one hand, be gentle, and then the next, next breath he says, fight. It's like, how does this work together? Well, here's how we can understand this. Verse 11 is about the external response to people, and verse 12 is about the internal response of our hearts. We're not to fight others. God, his word is so clear about this. Like, we just got to read the Bible and, and see that this is so clear. Read Romans 12. Romans 12 clearly teaches us that God fights our battles for us. God fights our battles for us. We don't have to bring vengeance on anyone. We don't have to go about that on our own. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's Romans 12. That was quoted out of the Old Testament, but Paul uses that in the context of of not going out of our way to harm others for whatever motives that we may have. So that's clear. So what we, what we know from the scriptures is the fight that he's talking about here is not an external fight. We're not called to some crusade. We tried that way back in the day and it didn't work out so well. So like, let's not go there again. Let's see what he's really talking about. He's talking about pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That's our demeanor towards others. But what should be our demeanor internally? That's where verse 12 speaks into. Fight the good fight of the faith. This word fight in in the Greek language can be translated with the word struggle. And I actually think that kind of gets more to the heart of this. If we, if we see it as struggling the good struggle for the faith, that's, that's what we're called to do. We, the Christian life is a struggle. It is hard. And anyone who tells you otherwise is, um, is not telling you the truth. Okay, the, this, this Greek word means struggle. It can be translated fight. It could be translated competition. So think like a boxing match. But, but we're called to struggle and fight the good fight for the faith. The faith is worth fighting for in our hearts, but it's still going to be a struggle. And, and anybody who speaks to this issue and convinces people that the Christian life should just be smooth and easy and, and there's no hardship in it, they're one of three things. They're either, they're either um, a liar, they're deceptive, because it's clear in the scripture that the Christian life is not easy. Jesus literally says that discipleship Following him is bearing a cross. A cross is an instrument of torture and execution. 
Okay, not a comfortable imagery that we're called to have, but that's the call. Jesus literally said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling us, the Bible is extraordinarily honest with us. There is nothing in the Bible that's going to indicate an easy go at the Christian life. So people who say that there is are either deceptive or delusional or the devil. All right, that's it. Those are your three choices. Uh, If somebody's trying to convince you that the Christian life is is easy and you're just going to get all of this good stuff all the time and you're never going to have problems, they're lying to you. And it actually is, I believe, one of the greatest tools of the devil to convince us that it should be easy. Because what happens when we're convinced of the lie that the Christian faith is easy, uh, we, we then end up hitting the wall of it's not easy. So now there's a foothold that he can take and say, see, see, you shouldn't follow Jesus because your life should be easy. Why isn't it easy? Why, are you, why do you have this health problem? Why do you have this financial problem? Well, why are you struggling relationally with this person? It shouldn't all this be easy. That's a lie, and it's not true. So the, the Christian life is a struggle, and that's why we're called to fight the good fight of the faith. We're, we're called to that because it actually is a struggle to follow Jesus. It really is. And, and so I told you last week that you're going to get a lot of C.S. Lewis from me, and, and uh, I've been reading C.S. Lewis. So... Here's a quote. Here's what he says. Uh, And I think it's mere Christianity. He writes this. He says, No man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. The silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army, this was during World War II, he's writing this, by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life, always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. And so, again, there's there's just a reality that he's pointing out here that's helpful. Like, we, we we can't just assume that the Christian life is easy. It is a struggle. And anyone who says it's not is probably giving in too, too quickly. That's, that's his point. And so here we're called to fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life. Hold on to it. Cling to it with all that you have. That's what Paul's commending Timothy to do. And, and to, to kind of round this out, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, um, just for a moment here. We're going to look at we're actually going to bounce between these two because I think Hebrews 11 and 12 parallel very nicely with what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy. Um, chapter 11 of Hebrews is known, we, we tend to call it as the hall of faith because right? he's working through all of these different people from the Old Testament who had faith, they trusted the Lord, even in the midst of their hardships, they kept trusting him. 
Um, and that's all good. We don't have time to look at all of this. So let's, let's look at verse 35 um, and through verse 1 of chapter 12. <clears throat> this kind of summarizes the, the point. Um, we'll start in the second sentence of 35. So he says, some, some people, he's talking about some people who had this faith in God, but had a really hard life. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the whole world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they, might, they should not be made perfect. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses meaning the people he's just talked about, all these people that suffered before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You, you see the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making? It's the same one that Paul makes. That, that the Christian life is not simple, it's not easy. In fact, it can be detrimental to your health. So what do you do? You lay aside every sin that weighs you down and you just keep running. You just keep going. You keep fighting. You keep holding on. You keep going. This, he, the writer of Hebrews uses the analogy of a race that you're running. Paul uses the analogy of a fight that you're fighting or the eternal life that you're clinging to. But the analogies aside, the point is still the same, that we have a hard call as Christians. We do. Christianity is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. It is actually very difficult to do what Christ calls us to do. But there's something greater ahead of us. And we keep running. We keep going. We keep fighting. So the first way that, that we see our call to follow Jesus is that we, we follow him through fighting to be near him. We follow him by fighting to be near him. If we're going to give up, we'll never we'll never grow. If we call it call it quits, we'll never see what God may do. Here's the thing, it's such such a short-sighted deal because you may go through a very hard season in your life. We all will to some degree. But you go through this hard season and you're thinking in the moment this is terrible. I just got to get out of this thing because Jesus is obviously not living up to his end of the bargain, which is a ludicrous idea anyways, but he's not living up to his end, so I'm going to call it quits. But like Lewis mentioned in, his, in the quote I just read, if you give up after five minutes, you don't know what it'll be like an hour later in that temptation. Same is true if you give up now, you don't know what it'll be like a year later or two years later or 10 years later. You don't know what God is going to do if you call it quits. You just got to keep going, keep pursuing him. And so we're seeing the first way to follow Jesus is to fight to follow him. It is a battle. It needs to be fought internally. It's not a battle outside of us. It's a battle inside of us. 
It's an internal struggle that we fight, and it's a good struggle. Let's keep going. Second, look at verse 13 back in 1 Timothy 6. Here's what Paul says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And so this, this may, on its surface, may not make a ton of sense, but, but fo- follow my thought here. Um, essentially what Paul is saying here is this, that we follow Jesus by continuing to look at Jesus. That, that's what, Paul doesn't use the word look, but he's, he's calling Timothy's mind back to Christ, right? Like he says, I commend you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He's calling Timothy back to think about Christ. So think about how Christ stood before Pontius Pilate and made the good confession. Think about that. Look at him. Pay attention to Jesus. So what is this good confession that Paul's talking about? Let's look at that quickly. It's in John 18, verse 33 to 38. Uh, Here we get the the record or the the story about Jesus before Pontius Pilate. This is just before his crucifixion. He had never met Pontius Pilate, who was, by the way, the governor of Rome in Judea. So Pontius Pilate is a, a Roman official. The people of Israel, the, the Jewish leaders, had to get Pilate, Pilate's permission to crucify Christ because they, being under Roman occupation, didn't have the authority to, to kill anybody, to execute anyone, even if they broke their own laws. They weren't allowed to execute criminals. And so they had to get Pilate to, to sign off on this and the way they went about this, the, their tactic was, let's convince Pilate that Jesus is, is trying to start an insurrection by claiming to be a king. Okay, so that's the context. Verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. See, we're not called to fight like that. But, he says, uh, that fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? So this exchange, this good confession that Paul refers to, is this confession of Jesus saying, essentially, I'm here to show people the truth. I'm here to show people the truth. And Paul, excuse me, Pilate asks Jesus this amazingly ironic question. What is the truth? What is truth? 
And the irony in that is that he's staring truth in the face. He doesn't see that. He, he came, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth and to be the truth. John 14 tells us Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we have to keep looking to Jesus as our source of truth, as our source of life, as our source of hope, all the things that we're called to do. And here's the issue. If we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we have to keep our eyes on him because he's the only thing true in a fallen world. And I think so many of our problems with following Jesus is that we don't look at him enough and we look at ourselves too much. We've made somehow along the line, uh, Christianity has become largely about what we do and not about what Christ has done. Somewhere, somewhere there's a disconnect. It's always been this way. Paul had to deal with that in the, the Ephesian church. That's why this letter was written. It's not a new problem, but it's still a problem. We still haven't outgrown this issue in, in our day. We still think that the Christian life is largely about us and what we do. And now let me just point out the problem with that. The problem is that we, if we're looking at ourselves all the time for our spiritual growth or for our maturity or for whatever, if we're always looking at ourselves as the metric of this, it's going to lead us to one of two things. It's going to lead us to either pride or despair. That's it. Pride, because we're going to look at ourselves and, and deceive ourselves largely into thinking, you know, we're doing pretty good here. And we can make those, those determinations because maybe we're doing better than somebody else. We're not doing better than Jesus, so I don't know where the pride comes in, but we can convince ourselves that because we're maybe better off than someone else, we're doing all right, we can pat ourselves on the back. But that pride inevitably shows that we're not growing in Christ because pride is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to. So there's the problem. So it'll either lead to pride or it will lead to despair. Despair is by looking at ourselves and going, wow, I am just terrible and I'm miserable and I have no hope. And that's not right either. That's not the Christian response either. There's hope because our salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. That's what we've got to turn our eyes to. And, and that's why when I, I've had many conversations over the years with people who struggle with their salvation and think, I'm not saved because I sinned. Well, no, you sinned because you're a sinner. Okay, but, but Jesus is overcoming your sin. That's the whole point, right? And so people will question, am I saved? Am I? And I tell them my prescription is read Romans 8 until you believe Romans 8. And the reason for that is because it tells us flat out why our salvation leads to no condemnation, I don't have this up on the screen, but Romans 8, 1 to 3, some of my favorite verses because it's just so clear. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you're in Jesus. But why is that the case? Is it just, is Paul just magically waving some wand around and saying, here you go, no condemnation? No, there's a reason. Verse 2 says, Because... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, okay? And here's why that happened. Verse three, because, this is crucial, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You hear what Paul says? The reason that you and I can stand upright before the Lord is not because we've pulled off something amazing, but because God did what we could never do for ourselves. God did it so that we, because we couldn't do it, and even if we could, we wouldn't do it because we're sinners. And so God did what we could not do by sending Jesus into human form and living that life under the law and living perfectly before the Father and dying in our place and rising again from the dead, all the things wrapped up in this beautiful gospel message. We, we have to look at that. We got to keep casting our eyes there. When we look at Jesus who he is and what he's done, then we can really start to grow. Our Christian faith will stagnate if we keep our eyes on ourselves because you can only take yourself so far. But if you place them onto Jesus, then that encouragement and strength to keep, co- keep going grows. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12. This is where it, where it goes in verse 2. Right, he says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us in verse, 11, in verse 1. But then he tells us how to do that in verse 2. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Don't, don't blow past that. Don't miss that. Jesus is the founder of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. So if Jesus is that, that means you're not that the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. What is that joy? Well, you and me are that joy. The people that he has brought into salvation through that act of sacrificial death. He was keeping his eyes on the end result of this suffering. So, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to fight to be near him and we've got to look at him. Got to take our eyes off ourselves. One more. Verse 14 to 16 in chapter 6 here. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. We'll start in verse 13. Who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So that's what Paul's charging Timothy to do, to keep the commandment unstained and freed from reproach. Basically, kind of a complicated way of saying, just keep going with Jesus, keep following him, keep obeying him, keep, keep listening to him. Until when? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, so notice what Paul's doing here. He's telling Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, to hold on to eternal life, to keep looking at Jesus and the good confession he made. And then he tells him to keep doing these things until Jesus comes back. Now, Timothy died before Jesus came back. But that's okay. That's part of the deal. Like, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back because it says he will come back at the proper time. What's the proper time? You, th- you think and I think most of the time the proper time is now. <laughs> but Jesus has a different definition of the proper time, obviously. The proper time is when everybody Jesus wants to save is saved. That's what, that's what Peter says. Peter says that you, God does not count slowness the way you count slowness. And, and remember, Peter's writing those words like 30 or 40 years after Jesus left. <laughs> We're 2,000-something years after Jesus left, and Peter was already impatient with the return of Christ. Like, he thought, oh, should have been back by now. But he says he's not back because there's still people he's got to save. And that's a good thing. I actually find it to be somewhat discouraging and encouraging all at the same time because I want Jesus to right all these wrongs. Of course we do. I also want Jesus to save many, many people. So it's like, well, can't have it both ways, I guess. We've got to hang in there. He's going to come at the proper time. We're not told what the proper time is. But we've got to keep our eyes on the hope of Jesus. We follow Jesus through hoping in him. That's the point Paul's making. He, he draws us back to who God is, that we got to keep going till either we die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. We just keep going, but we got to keep hoping in this, in this God that we are following. He defines him in verse 15. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, when, when the Bible refers to Jesus or broadly just, God in general, the Trinitarian God we worship, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's not accidental, that's not unintentional. It is intentional. It's actually a, in the days of Paul in the Roman Empire, it would have been a political statement, actually. Because the King Caesar claimed to be the King of Kings. And so to say, no, no, Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is to go and say, no, sorry, emperor, you, you, you ain't that. But in a practical sense, because we don't live in a culture with kings and, and sovereigns and all that, my friends over in England maybe wrap their heads around these things a little easier than we do because it's, it's embedded into their culture more so than ours. Um, but what, what is fundamentally happening here is we're being told that there is no earthly power no earthly power, no earthly authority, no earthly institution that can trump Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Jesus is the only one that we need to ultimately hope in. It's not our, it's not our earthly authorities that we should hope in. We know that. We know that. We don't always live like we know that, but we know that, right? And so we have to keep hoping in 
Jesus. And it says he alone, verse 16, has immortality. Immortality means he's, he's never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. We are immortal moving forward from the time we're created to the time, you know, onward and onward. We're, we're going to stay existing, but we're not truly immortal because we had a beginning. God does not have a beginning. He just always is, and that's hard to wrap our heads around, but that's what it means. He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's, this is a reference to his perfection and his purity. God is so perfect that it, he, his perfection would kill any one of us if we saw him in his, in his true glory. That's why he had to be veiled in human flesh. We could see Jesus in his human form. You can't see God in his absolute perfection until he gives you a resurrected new body, one that can't die because otherwise you'd die. If you were in heaven, you'd just keep on dying. You'd wake up again and you'd die again, right? You just got to have that perfected body so we can withstand it. And so that's what he's saying. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see him. And of course, he's not talking about Christ in the, in the human form. Of course, people saw him, but he's talking about God in his, in his absolute perfection. Nobody can see him. And so not without you know, being killed in the process. And so it says then, verse 16 says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Dominion means rule and reign and control eternally. So again, this is bringing us back to this hope that, that our current state of affairs is not the end result of life. In fact, the King of kings and Lord of lords is for us and with us, and we follow him. Flip back over to Hebrews 12. We'll, we'll look at verse 28 um, and, and uh, 29. Here's how this chapter ends. It ends right where Paul takes us there. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have this amazing kingdom that cannot be shaken, can't be destroyed, it can't be ruined. It is truly unshakable. So here's the point. The world is and always has been hostile to Jesus and by default his followers. The world is hard. We live in a difficult time. We get it. But we can have hope. We can have hope because Jesus is the king of kings who rules and reigns over all. And he is the king who will come back and set everything right at the proper time. The point is this, we can't give up. We can't let the world or our suffering or our our, our internal struggles, we can't let these things keep us from fighting and looking and hoping in Jesus. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. I don't want, I, I just think that there's so many of us that are tempted to throw in the towel. It's easy to be tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that sometimes too. I, it's just, it is. It's easy to go, ah, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to keep going, keep fighting, keep running, keep pursuing. And Jesus will 
at the proper time, bring us to where we need to be. So we fight to be with him. We look at him and we hope in him. We can keep, we can keep moving if we do. All right, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us an eternal and unshakable kingdom to hope in. We thank you that you have done all the work that, that we were required to do but could never do and that you did that on our behalf and for us. We thank you that you have given us the, the, the spirit of God to work in us and through us to help us fight for our faith in you. And we pray, God, that you would do the things that need to be done in our hearts today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.